Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. 2020 is a big year for New England politicians, with two Democratic presidential frontrunners from the region, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. We win when we have big enough ideas to meet the big problems in people's lives, and we get out there and fight for them. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Today, we'll look at where things stand in the presidential race and impeachment. And as a train carrying coal comes down the track, climate activists in Massachusetts stand in the way. This train is moving about 10 miles per hour. There's plenty of time to move if it's not going to stop. Plus how climate change made its way into the music of Philip B. Price. I'm also a new father, and it was uh, reverberating in me rather loudly um, how these things might affect him. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Henry Epp, All Things Considered host and reporter at Vermont Public Radio. Thanks for joining us. As the Senate impeachment trial of President Donald Trump draws near, the spotlight has shifted to a handful of Republican senators. With a narrowly divided Senate, this group could force Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to reconsider his vow for a speedy acquittal of the president. Among them is Maine Senator Susan Collins. She already faces a difficult re-election bid in a deeply divided state. Maine Public Radio's Steve Missler explains how impeachment is only adding to her troubles. Collins announced a re-election the same day the House of Representatives voted to impeach Trump. It was curious timing, given that her vote to either convict or acquit the president could affect her chances of winning a fifth term. Collins has generally said little about impeachment, citing her role as a juror, a position her Democratic challengers say is a cop-out. Now, Trump's opponents want her to use her leverage to ensure a fair and thorough trial. Key witnesses in the Ukraine scandal must testify in the Senate impeachment trial. These witnesses include Rudy Giuliani. Well, you did ask Ukraine to look into Joe Biden. Of course I did. Mick Mulvaney. You just described as a quid pro quo. That ad is from a group called the Republicans for the Rule of Law. It's part of a pressure campaign to get Collins to push for witnesses that the White House has so far blocked. Just four Republican senators could force McConnell to call those witnesses. Collins' political brand is tied to being a centrist, and she's viewed as possibly persuadable. But Collins has stayed quiet on what she'll do. She says there should be bipartisan agreement on how the trial goes, just as there was during Bill Clinton's impeachment in 1999. Although Collins also acknowledges that sort of agreement is unlikely now. 100 to zero. I can't imagine anything like that happening today, regrettably. Echoing recent criticism from her friend and close ally, Alaska Republican Lisa Murkowski, Collins says it's inappropriate for McConnell to coordinate with the White House, but that Democrats have also rushed to their corner. There are senators on both sides of the aisle who, to me, are not giving the appearance of and the reality of judging this in an impartial way. 
Like Murkowski, Collins says Democrats should not have held a hasty impeachment vote in the House. She says they should be asking the courts to compel Trump aides to testify and says House Speaker Nancy Pelosi should transmit the articles of impeachment to the Senate instead of holding on to them for now. So that seems an odd way to operate. Unlike many Senate Republicans, Collins says she's open to witnesses in the Senate trial, but also that it's too early to say which ones. And she stopped short of saying she'll publicly force the issue, as she did during the run-up to the Clinton impeachment trial. I need more evidence. I need witnesses and further evidence to guide me to the right destination, to get to the truth. The president's supporters are also keeping a close eye on Collins, who declared in 2016 that Trump was unfit for office. If she breaks ranks on impeachment, Collins could draw a primary challenge. Trump is also paying attention. Last week, he retweeted an endorsement of Collins' re-election bid to his 68 million followers. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Steve Missler in Portland, Maine. The first primary election in the nation is about a month out, and it's right here in New England. New Hampshire holds its primary on February 11th. The Iowa caucus is a week before. Two New Englanders are among the frontrunners for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. And they're not the only New Englanders running for president. Anthony Brooks, senior political reporter for WBUR in Boston, joins us now to talk about where things stand in New Hampshire and for the New Englanders in the race. Anthony, welcome back to Next. Nice to be here. So it really depends on which poll you're looking at. But on average, where do the top four Democratic presidential candidates stand right now in New Hampshire? Yeah, so this is a close race uh, with Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg all sort of uh, clumped together at the top. Uh, WBUR did a poll about a month ago, and it gave Buttigieg uh, the edge. He he took about 18 uh, percent among likely primary voters, followed by Joe Biden at 17, Bernie Sanders at 15 and Elizabeth Warren at 12. Um, a new poll from CBS has uh, Bernie Sanders uh, in the lead with 27 percent, followed by Joe Biden, then Elizabeth Warren, then Pete Buttigieg. So what I found interesting, particularly about our poll a month ago, is the biggest number was 20 percent. And that was the number of voters who had, who said they still haven't made up their mind. So that was a month ago. My guess is that number would be down a little bit. But it's an indication of how volatile and unsettled this race remains. Yeah. And so that result of having Buttigieg on top in New Hampshire in the WBUR poll is interesting. What do you think New Hampshire voters see in Buttigieg? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I think the fact that he's polling so well uh, indicates that he's very well organized. He's been raising raising a lot of money. I know he's got more people on the ground in New Hampshire than just about anyone else. Maybe Elizabeth Warren comes close, uh, but he's had a lot of organization on the ground. I also think there's this moment in the, among Democrats uh, where there's this tension between does the Democratic Party go hard left, hard progressive toward uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, or is a more moderate uh, message the way to get those uh, voters in the middle of the country, uh, the the political middle, if you will? And I think Buttigieg speaks to, to those folks. Well, let's turn now to uh, those uh, progressive senators that are running Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. They've been trading spots in national polls over the last few months. And Warren now appears to have slipped in the polls right now a bit. What does her campaign have to say about that? 
Well, when you talk to members of her campaign, I don't think they're happy about it, but they're pretty stoic. And they say, look, um, no campaign is going to have only good days. And what they say is we're in a good position to weather the bad days because uh, we have a lot of good organization on the ground. And that's super important, especially in a caucus state like Iowa, where you've got to convince a bunch of people to come out on a winter night and hang around for an hour or two. So they feel like they're in a good position to do that. Okay. And, uh, but, you know, her message has really been about um, addressing big ideas and big structural change, as her campaign says. Is there a reason that that message just doesn't seem to be working with voters at the moment? Well, I think it depends on on which voter you're talking to. So so let's hear a little bit of, of Elizabeth Warren. She was speaking uh, just last week in Concord, New Hampshire. Here's what she said would happen if Democrats play it safe. Then Democrats will lose. We win when we have big enough ideas to meet the big problems in people's lives and we get out there and fight for them. What's her biggest challenge right now? You know, I think her biggest challenge, honestly, is Bernie Sanders. I mean, he's just uh, sort of peaking at the right moment. So here's Dante Scala. He's a political science professor at the University of New Hampshire I spoke to about Warren, who talks about Warren being challenged on two fronts. I think Elizabeth Warren is boxed in right now. She's boxed in by the continued persistent success of Bernie Sanders for that progressive vote. So Sanders represents something of a roadblock for her. And Henry Scala says that Buttigieg represents another roadblock by attracting those highly educated white voters who might otherwise have gone uh, for Warren. But Dante Scala also believes this race remains unsettled and unresolved. Well, well, let's turn now to uh, Bernie Sanders, who had a really strong fundraising quarter to round up the end of 2019. Uh, he raised nearly $35 million. That's about $10 million less than what President Trump raised during that same quarter. But how does it compare to the other Democratic candidates in the field? Well, it's more than anybody else. Uh, the, the next in line there was, uh, I believe, Pete Buttigieg. Um, he raised... I think around 20 million. Joe Biden was right up there as well. Elizabeth Warren was down uh, compared to the previous quarter. So Bernie Sanders is really in a league of his own. And it really speaks to the strength of his base. Um, And in a way, he's been sort of flying under the radar. And yet he has been steadily climbing, gaining support. This recent CBS poll has him on top. And if you talk to his supporters, uh, particularly in New Hampshire, they're not surprised. I mean, they've been saying from the start, he's the guy who won in 2016 in the state. He's got the passion. He's got the followers. And he's got the money and the organization to keep going for a long, long time. And I think those fundraising numbers speak to just how well organized he is. And and how long he can stay in this race. Yeah. And I mean, he is, though, uh, the oldest candidate in the presidential race. He had a heart attack in October. Uh, at the end of December, his campaign released letters from three different doctors who say he's fit to campaign, quote, without limitation. Uh, given Sanders' strong fundraising and his standing in the polls, it would seem that a lot of voters aren't that concerned about his age and health. Does that seem accurate? Yeah, I think that's right, especially if you talk to his supporters. I mean, I was up in New Hampshire um, for his first appearance after he came back from that heart attack, and everyone was just took it in stride and said, yeah, this was a bump along the road, but he's okay. 
uh, we're behind him. And indeed, he only seemed to get stronger. So it doesn't seem to have had an effect. Well, there are two other New Englanders in the presidential race that we have not talked about yet. And I want to start with former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. He's running in the Republican primary against President Trump. Uh, Clearly a long shot bid. But how's it going for him? Well, uh, it's not going well. I mean, Bill Weld is there, but he's not there very often. Um, You know, Donald Trump enjoys very sturdy support among likely uh, Republican primary voters. Weld polled at about 8% in our poll um, a month ago. Uh, you know, that compared to something like the high 70s for President Trump. So I don't think it, 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 it really indicates any kind of a threat. Well, let's turn to one more candidate who would probably really like 8% in the polls right now. Another New England candidate, uh, former governor of Massachusetts, Democrat Deval Patrick. He got in the race just in November, much later than other candidates. And he has not made much headway in the polls so far. What's he up to here? Yeah, well, my heart sort of goes out to Deval Patrick in so far as he's a talented politician. You know, uh, as a Massachusetts resident, I saw him uh, work uh, as as governor. I saw him run two very successful campaigns. The first one was a sort of model of grassroots campaigning. He's an impressive political talent. But as you suggested, he got into this race very, very late. His wife had cancer a year ago, and he had to sort of stay home and attend to that. Uh, she's cancer free now, and that's the good news. So he still had the desire to get into this race. But getting in so late was a huge challenge because so much of the talent was already committed to other candidates, uh, the ability to raise lots of money. He doesn't have deep pockets. He's not like a Michael Bloomberg where he could spend billions of his own money. So he's struggling. But I have to say, he's still out there. I was looking at his schedule. He's uh, running around New Hampshire a lot uh, this week campaigning. So we'll see if he catches fire. But right now, it looks like a pretty steep hill for him to climb. All right. Well, Anthony, just finally, um, we know the four top candidates in terms of polling, Buttigieg, Biden, Warren and Sanders. Um, Do you see any other candidates in this field, which is much larger, who could maybe uh, be a potential upset in New Hampshire? Um, I'm interested to see what Amy Klobuchar is going to do. She's a Midwesterner. Uh, She's been rising in the poll numbers. She had a pretty good uh, final quarter of fundraising. She could surprise folks in Iowa. And she would definitely represent that sort of more moderate Democrat that we were talking about earlier. If she surprises folks with a strong performance in Iowa, that could influence how well she does in in New Hampshire. Anthony Brooks is a senior political reporter for WBUR in Boston. Anthony, thanks for checking in. Really my pleasure. Thank you, Henry. Coming up, we'll tag along as climate activists try to stop a coal train in Massachusetts. And we'll hear about proposals for paid family leave and possible fixes for nursing shortages in northern New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. I'm Henry Epp. You're listening to Next. In most states around New England, legislatures are just getting started with their 2020 sessions. One issue that's shaping up to be a big priority in both New Hampshire and Vermont, paid family and medical leave. 
All other New England states now have some form of paid leave on the books. But in the two states straddling the Connecticut River in northern New England, the debate is ongoing. And it centers on whether to make paid leave mandatory or voluntary. About a year ago, the two Republican governors of Vermont and New Hampshire teamed up to pitch a voluntary paid leave plan. At a press conference last January, Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire and Vermont Governor Phil Scott stood side by side to lay out their vision. Sununu noted that both he and Scott opposed plans proposed by Democrats to offer mandatory paid leave in 2018. And unfortunately, those plans were not ones uh, that either Governor Scott or myself could support. In New Hampshire's case, the proposed plan administratively trapped people into an effective income tax. Their counterproposal? A plan that would cover state government workers and which companies could voluntarily opt into. Scott said Vermont's small size makes it necessary to work with other states. Vermont is so small uh, that we, we need some help. We, need, we should be able to work with others. Uh, and there are some, you know, this came to the forefront. So let's fast forward now to the present. Spoiler, the two governors' proposal did not pass the democratically controlled legislatures last year, and paid family leave is still on the table in the Granite and Green Mountain states. To bring us up to speed, I'm joined by political reporters from both states, Josh Rogers of NHPR and Pete Hirschfeld of VPR. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us on. So, uh, Pete, let's start with you and back up to last year. Uh, Why did Scott and Sununu want to team up on paid leave in the first place? Presumably because they think paid leave is a concept that has some real merit. If you look across the country right now, paid family leave is an issue that's gaining traction across party lines. And elected officials think it's uh, an especially appealing benefit for young families. And both New Hampshire and Vermont would certainly like to attract more of those. What Phil Scott and Chris Sununu do not like, however, is a mandatory paid leave program. Because it really – the only way to do it is to impose a new payroll tax on virtually all workers. I think Phil Scott and Chris Sununu saw an opportunity to take the lead politically on paid leave but to fashion their state's programs in a way that was consistent with their ideological philosophies, which is to say let individuals decide for themselves whether they want to purchase a paid leave benefit, make it voluntary instead of these mandatory plans that Democratic lawmakers are pushing for in Vermont and New Hampshire. And so, Josh, uh, when this was presented to lawmakers in New Hampshire, how was it received by them? Well, it was pretty much obviously going to be a non-starter in the democratically controlled legislature. Democrats you know, had their own model of a plan, a mandatory plan that would require, you know, 0.5 percent payroll tax. You know, that's pretty much been where we've been, which is the governor uh, ultimately calling anything that had a mandatory payroll tax component uh, an income tax, uh, which is sort of fighting words, particularly coming out of a Republican in New Hampshire. He's uh, has a new plan. He's going to uh, push in the legislature this year, which is more limited than the one that he and Governor Scott uh, proposed. Uh, but one big change to that plan is that it won't be won't be providing a benefit uh, to workers who are themselves out sick. And, you know, on the flip side of this, Democrats, you know, one of the Democrats uh, running for governor, uh, Dan Feltus, who is the Senate's majority leader currently, uh, he was the architect of the paid family leave bill that the uh, governor rejected. And so the politics in New Hampshire make this very tough. Okay, so in both states, it it really seems like there's sort of still the standoff between the Republicans uh, who control the governorship and uh, Democrats who control the legislatures. Um, So new sessions are just getting started. Pete, where do things stand now in Vermont? 
We had a really fascinating development about a month ago when Phil Scott took the bull by the horns on this issue and made the first step toward bypassing the legislature altogether and unilaterally creating a voluntary paid leave program in Vermont. He did that by inking a contract with the state workers union that includes a paid leave benefit for all 8,500 or so state workers in Vermont. And he says once he has that program in place for state workers, then non-government employees and private sector businesses will be able to voluntarily opt in to that same paid leave benefit that workers are getting. He says it would cost uh, – current projections are about $270 a month. Democratic lawmakers, though, say they are undeterred. They say they plan to pass a mandatory paid leave proposal early in the 2020 legislative session. And while Phil Scott has all but promised to veto that legislation, Democrats say they are going to do their best to muster the votes that they would need to override his veto. Okay, and and Josh, back to New Hampshire, uh, this interesting development in Vermont where um, there could be a plan hammered out through this uh, contract with state workers. I mean, do you see any movement beyond the sort of stalemate that's been going on for a while now in New Hampshire? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly Governor Sununu would probably like to be in a position to strike a deal with uh, state employees along the lines of what Governor Scott is going for. But, you know, his relation with the largest state employees union is really at an all-time low there at a contract impasse. And so there's not really much of an avenue for him there. Um, one thing he has done, which is he's by executive act, has started allowing for some state workers to be able to bring children into state offices, children from six weeks to six months. Like apparently this is done in some states already. He says that you know this will provide workers with flexibility and recognizes the high cost of childcare and the need for families to bond, et cetera. You know, critics uh, you know, are saying this is basically the opposite of paid leave. This is uh, you know, forcing people to work and take care of their children at the same time. Uh, this is definitely going to be an issue as it has in the last couple election cycles in New Hampshire, like a big issue. Democrats think that this is something that Governor Sununu could be vulnerable on. And, you know, Governor Sununu is also trying to be responsive to the needs of uh, young families in the state and is trying to make New Hampshire an attractive place. Uh, whether or not what he's proposing uh, meets that test is, you know, I guess a question for voters to decide. Yeah, well, so going back uh, then, however this pans out in the coming months, going back about a year ago to this two-state plan that Sununu and Scott announced, I'm curious if the fact that it didn't pan out, uh, if that says anything about the ability of these two neighboring states to work together on shared policy goals. Uh, Pete, let's start with you. Do you think that there's any significance there? Uh, You know, it's difficult enough for one state to pass major policy reforms on its own. Doing so with another jurisdiction tends to complicate that process even more. Uh, But we've seen interstate partnerships work across the Northeast. You can look at the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, for instance. So there are going to be opportunities for states to collaborate when it makes sense, notwithstanding the complications that those partnerships often entail. And and Josh, to you, um, obviously, as you said, this is going to be an election issue, potentially. Uh, Scott is also up for re-election later this year as well, though he has not officially announced his plans. Um, do you expect these two Republican governors in these northern New England states to ever try something similar like this again? I mean, who's to say? I do think the realities of Republican governors and Democrat-controlled legislatures, you know, can make life hard for governors in their individual state. Josh Rogers covers the New Hampshire State House for NHPR. Pete Hirschfeld covers Vermont's State House for VPR. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Henry. You're welcome.
Here's another example of how economic prospects in different New England states can impact each other. Nursing. Rural hospitals across America are closing, and one of the top causes is a shortage of doctors and nurses. Data from the University of North Carolina shows that at least 120 rural hospitals have closed nationwide since 2010. And as rural hospitals close, that can lead to an increase in the mortality rate, according to a recent study from the National Bureau of Economic Research. The issue is predicted to become particularly bad in the south and west of the United States. Still, the shortage of registered nurses also affects New England. Maine and Vermont are projected to face shortfalls in the thousands. Laura Pelosi is here to talk about the nursing situation in Vermont. She's a member of the state's Rural Health Services Task Force. That's a group responsible for recommending improvements to challenges in the state's healthcare system. Laura Pelosi, welcome to Next. Thank you. First of all, we see that nursing shortages are a problem nationwide. Uh, What are some of the issues with nurse recruitment specific to Vermont? So we have a number of challenges that the Rural Health Services Task Force has identified. The first being that obviously we have a tight labor market, which is playing itself out um, nationally, regionally, and then here more locally within the state of Vermont. And a lot of that for Vermont is driven by the fact that we have an aging population. Depending on which study you look at, um, Vermont's the second oldest state in the nation. So that presents unique challenges for us in the healthcare sector. The first being that the older you get, typically the more health care services you need and the more long-term care services that you need, um, either at home or in a nursing home or an assisted living facility. But we also have an aging workforce as our population ages, our workforce ages, and we're seeing that really play out at both the physician level, um, the primary care level, and the and nursing um, professions. Um, we also have a challenge with uh, rising higher education costs, which you know we hear about certainly on a national level, coupled with uh, what we what we call um, in the task force limited educational capacity, which means we can't enroll all of the qualified applicants um, that want to come into nursing programs in particular because we don't have the clinical nurse faculty that we need um, to be able to teach those students. Are there certain efforts that could help change that? Yes, the task force will be making some recommendations to the legislature um, that will um, allow us to expand the the pool of of nurses who can um, provide clinical nurse faculty services. So there will be some recommendations to sort of broaden um, the the types of qualified folks who can perform clinical nurse faculty. Uh, services in the state. Mm -hmm. What else is the group recommending that the state do to get more nurses into the workforce here in Vermont? So the the second piece uh, with respect to nursing specifically is to join the Interstate Nurse Compact, which 33 other states are parties to, and that allows you know nurses to have reciprocity in their licensing. So if you're licensed in a compact state, you can um, perform uh, your job as a nurse in any of those other compact states. And then to try to tackle some of the real challenges around rising higher education debt, you know, we've kind of looked at what our current programs are in place. And Vermont has always um, done a great job of, of being a state that provides um, funding for loan repayment um, for the for healthcare professionals. But as we sort of look across what's happening at our neighboring states, um, one of the recommendations is that the state increase. Um, its support and funding for the loan repayment program. Uh, Just to break that down a little bit, I mean, how is Vermont compared to neighboring states, uh, say New Hampshire, for example? 
So roughly, uh, Vermont's loan repayment program is about a million dollars a year. Um, over the last handful of years, we've only been able to award 59 percent um, of applicants with an award. New Hampshire, for example, in this most recent fiscal year appropriated $6.5 million for its loan repayment program. And as you're looking at the issues here in Vermont, are there particular other New England uh, states and, and markets for nurses that are better at attracting nurses than Vermont is? I don't know about better, but I think certainly as we've looked across um, our our peers here in New England, um, Maine has a pretty aggressive tax incentive program um, tied to student loan repayment. They also have recently implemented a tax credit program for primary care practitioners. Um, so those things, you know, make Maine, which is the oldest state in the nation and facing very similar challenges to Vermont, makes Maine more attractive. Um, so the thinking of the task force really is that Vermont needs to be a little more bold and a little more aggressive to differentiate ourselves and be competitive, certainly um, with our peers in New England, um, but also recognizing it is a it is a national market. Is the end goal then to be on equal footing with other New England states? I think we at least have to get there. (laughs) Uh, You know, we at least need to get to a place where we can offer at least something similar to what our our peers in New England are doing. And obviously, it would be great if we could go even further. Your recommendations will be submitted to the state legislature next week. Is that right? Correct. Uh, Does the legislature seem to have an appetite for adopting any of the recommendations you're putting forward? I think our legislature certainly uh, is very aware of the challenges that we face. Um, what direction they choose to go in, I think, remains to be seen. But certainly the, the folks in the task force and the provider community are open to all good ideas. Laura Pelosi works for Vermont Healthcare Association and is a member of Vermont's Rural Health Services Task Force. Laura, thanks for coming on next. Thank you, Henry. As recently as the year 2000, New England got 18% of its power from coal. Today, it's just 1%. But environmentalists say even that's too much. They want to kill coal once and for all. And some are literally putting their bodies on the line by attempting to stop coal trains that are bound for New Hampshire. WBUR's Miriam Wasser followed this group of activists to the tracks for a look at the current state and future of coal in the region. On a freezing cold night in the middle of the woods, about a dozen climate activists are standing on train tracks in West Boylston, Mass. This train is moving about 10 miles per hour. They huddle together, headlamps strapped on and flashlights pointing south towards the approaching train. There's plenty of time to move if it's not going to stop. As the light from the train's headlights gets brighter and the horns get louder and longer, they stay put. In past protests, the slow-moving train has stopped. 500 feet away. 200 feet away. 100 feet away. It looks like a game of chicken. With the train 50 feet away, they jump off the tracks. No one is hurt, and the train continues on. It rolls past for seven straight minutes on its way to the Merrimack Generation Station in Bowen, New Hampshire. Holy crap! Look at this freaking coal train! Lila Corman Glazer is one of the people who stood on the tracks. It turns out they, they are willing to go to crazy lengths to deliver coal to this plant. 
But uh, we'll be back and we will keep up this campaign until we have effectively ended the use of coal in New England. These coal units have a critical role in the energy infrastructure in New England right now. This is Jim Andrews. He's the president of Granite Shore Power. That's the company that owns the Merrimack Station and another small coal plant near Portsmouth, New Hampshire. These coal plants, plus the one in Connecticut, are called peaker plants. They only burn coal when demand peaks, like the cold snap we had in mid-December. The system does have natural gas constraints in the winter. And when that happens, the role we play is to be available and be a cost-efficient resource to provide power. No one wants electricity price spikes or power shortages. But a lot of environmentalists think the cost of coal outweighs the benefits. Burning coal releases a lot of carbon dioxide. In fact, beginning with the Industrial Revolution, CO2 from burning coal has been one of the leading causes of human-induced climate change. Andrew says he's sympathetic to this argument, but he calls the activists misguided. I certainly understand the protest. I mean, personally, and as an organization, we're very conscious of climate change and we're very supportive of renewable resources coming online. But we also kind of recognize there is a bridge that is needed. The bridge he's talking about is the fuel we're going to use until we can power everything affordably with carbon-free sources like solar and wind. He says coal doesn't have to be part of that bridge, but the energy market favors whatever's cheapest. The activists on the tracks see things differently. Here's Tim DeChristopher of the Climate Civil Disobedience Center. Well, I think if it was just up to the market, then they wouldn't need tens of millions of dollars a year in, in subsidy payments. That's part of what distorts the market. What DeChristopher calls a subsidy payment is a system that keeps the power on in the coldest days of winter and the hottest days of summer. Power plants in New England get paid by producing electricity and by promising to be ready and available to produce electricity should demand spike. This is called a forward capacity payment. It's sort of like when a company compensates an employee for being on call. Dan Dolan heads up the New England Power Generators Association. He says the forward capacity market lets power plants bid to be on call. And as part of that, the requirements are that they participate every single day in the electricity market. That doesn't mean they're going to run every day, but every single day they have to make their electricity available. Right now, Dolan says it's cheaper to occasionally fire up old coal plants than it is to build new natural gas plants especially if they might only operate a few days a year when electricity demand spikes. I don't think that's a subsidy. I think that's a market at work. And Dolan, who is concerned about carbon emissions and climate change, says there's a market solution, a carbon tax. So let's do that. Let's put that in the market. And from there, if coal can survive, I think that's okay. I think it would be a big challenge. In the meantime, the activists say they'll keep trying to block coal trains until there aren't any left. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Miriam Wasser. After the break, Massachusetts-based musician Philip B. Price speaks about the influence of climate change and fatherhood on his new solo album. We'll also talk about his musical evolution over his 30-year career. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Welcome back to Next. I'm Henry App. 
Philip B. Price is best known these days as the frontman for the Massachusetts-based band Winter Pills. But his music career goes back 30 years. He played in an 80s art rock quartet called Memorial Garage and later in the power pop group The Maggies. Along the way, he also released solo records, but his last solo album came in 2004. But that changed in November when Price released his first solo album in 15 years. It's called Bone Almanac. Philip B. Price joins us now to talk about his career and to play a few songs from his new album. Philip, welcome to Next. Hey, thank you. So let's start with a song from your new album. I'm wondering if you could play the opening track, Holding On To Light. I will do that.
That's Philip B. Price performing Holding On to Light from his new album, Bone Almanac. Philip, thanks so much for, for performing that. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the tone of this album. There's mm-hmm. a, a clear melancholy to it, some mm. themes of loss and um, environmental devastation. I'm curious what was on your mind as you were writing these songs? Those things. <laughs> um, I was having an internal monologue or dialogue with myself about uh, a lot of these terrifying things that are happening uh, environmentally. Uh, I'm also a new father, and it was uh, reverberating in me rather loudly um, how these things might affect him. And as you're recording and writing these songs, I mean, you know, you have uh, a lot of, just in what we heard from Holding On To Light, uh, there's um, a rhythmic quality to it, um, and and a lot of m- melodic uh, movement in the song. Are you writing those melodies or lyrics first? Is there a, a typical process um, for you? For me, it's always melodies. I tend to have a lot of melodic ideas, and uh, whatever lyrics there are kind of come out of a, a lot of mumbling and recording the mumbling and then listening to the mumbling and trying to see what words are in there. Um, sometimes I have to force it. <laughs> force my hand lyrically um but it's not it's pretty rare that it's the other way around where i'll I'll write a nice set of lyrics and put some music to it it doesn't work that way for me some reason Mm. i I do want to actually turn to some lyrics uh that you wrote for the song a crow mocks my wings Mm. and and that begins with a poem that you wrote after your father passed away i wonder if you could read the first couple lines of that that one goes um i carried you down the narrow stairs stepped on a nail and we all stopped i could not recall what your last meal was that was my only job and can you tell us about the moment those lyrics were capturing um my father passed away now 18 years ago which seems insane to me Mm -hmm. but um that it's so long ago but uh he died at home and uh a group of us did have to carry him down the stairs because my parents lived in a pretty on a mountaintop in Vermont, mm. and uh, there there weren't really we, we were all just there at the house, and we had to get him out of the bed and downstairs. So we carried him down the stairs like that, and uh, uh, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking not necessarily at that moment, but I've thought many times how much I would. Uh, like to remember what his last meal was. Um, and I eventually did remember. Can you tell us what it was? Um, it was pork chops. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear your song, uh, Crow Mocks My Wings. Do you mind playing it for us? I don't mind, yeah. I have to get my other guitar here. Okay. It was my only job 
And at the hem of your dress And at the hem of your dress Beginning at the wilderness I fall into myself Beginning at the wilderness I fall into myself Crow laughs at me Scoffs at my wings Won't lead me out Lost in the maze Night's falling hard Lost in the maze Night's falling hard I am at the hem of your dress I am at the hem of your dress guest is Philip B. Price playing Crow Mocks My Wings off his new album, Bone Almanac. Philip, you're the frontman for Winter Pills, which is based in Northampton, Massachusetts. But before that, you played in two other bands. And we're going to listen to a clip of your first band, Memorial Garage, which was oh an art God. rock band that you were part of in the late <laughs> 1980s. Um, and so here's a clip of the song Headlines. Well, I wouldn't have chosen that one. <laughs> That's the song Headline off the album Mootland from 1988. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to move on to uh, the 90s and early 2000s to your band, The Maggies. This is the song Summer Girl, which was released in 2001. <laughs> So we can really hear how your sound uh, has changed over time. When you look back on the music that you played in your younger years, how do you feel about it? I I own it all. Um, uh, I always yeah, I like some of it. I love some of it. I don't know that I would want to subject everybody to it. Um, you know, it's it's a part of it's part of my history. And did you, I mean, has your approach to music changed over the years in terms of, I mean, stylistically, you know, those songs sound quite a bit different than what you're putting out uh, now as a solo artist? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it's always evolved, but there's always some parts of me that listen back to everything I've done and I feel like I've pretty much just written the same three songs over and over again for the past 30 years. 
But in terms of, I mean, your approach, have you made conscious decisions to move in a, oh yeah, you know, different direction? Uh, you know, it's never completely conscious. I'm usually, I learn or I'm, I evolve without knowing what I'm doing. I think if you just keep writing and writing and writing, you're, you're going to write your way out of some things and into other things. And uh, I certainly hope I've done that. In terms of going forward, do you see um, a certain direction that you intend to go to in terms of the kinds of music that you hope to make over the next several years? Oh, uh, we're going to, I mean, Winter Pills is probably going to make another record in the next couple of years. But I, I'm going to do another solo thing too, um, probably with the same, I uh, hope with the same uh, producer engineer, Justin Pizzaferrato. You mentioned that you're a, a new father. Has that influenced your songwriting at all on this album? or, or It's what influenced in that I, I, I don't have time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it has. A, I did manage to write some this past year, and uh, I think uh, I'll, I'll have to – I'll have to go back and, and, and really see what I've written. I don't often know what I've written until a couple of years after I've written it, really go back and, oh, that's what I was doing. Um, but I, it's impossible to not be influenced by by being surrounded by a, a tiny helpless being of light for, for in, day in, day out, and not sleeping for a year. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do very interesting things to your creative process. Yeah. Uh, well, you released Bone Almanac in November. Uh, do you plan uh, to go on tour with the new Yeah, album? I'm starting. It's it's funny. I released it then, but uh, the tour doesn't start till February. Philip B. Price is a solo artist and frontman for the band Winter Pills, based in Western Massachusetts. Philip, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. And that's our show this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Frank Allwine, Peter Hirschfeld, Peter Engish, Chris Albertine, Emily Quirk, Mike Toda, and Jean Amatruda. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Adam Ezra Group, and Francesca Blanchard. I'm Henry App. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio. It is time.